open up your Bibles to, uh, we have three different accounts you can consider. I prefer Mark 9, 33 through 37 for this event. As we look at the, Lord discor- uh, the Lord's discourse on humility as a mark of greatness. Humility as a mark of greatness. And this is actually a title that A.T. Robertson gives this section of text. Uh, I like it because of its irony. Uh, Many wouldn't think of humility as a mark of greatness. And the three different accounts that we have to consider, as I said, Mark 9, 33 through 37 is what we're going to start with. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5. And Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48. Starting with Mark's account, Mark 9, verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and this is Jesus, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto him, Unto them, whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. In Matthew's account, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5, it says, And uh, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted." And become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. And then lastly, Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48, says, Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest? And here, the way the sentence is structured, it's saying that that latter part is what they were disputing or reasoning. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. In covering this event, I I have a, a scattering of four points for us to consider. The first being that we see pride again so soon in the disciples. I, I think sometimes we, we want to think so highly of mankind to think that it's inconceivable, some of the things that they've experienced, that yet pride would once again rear its ugly head. But when they are a select few out of the, the multitude, out of the world, it's probably not too hard at some point for them to come to conclusion, there's something special about me. Uh, and, and you might think that that... Uh, wouldn't affect a pastor. It does. Sunday school teacher. It does. Song leaders. It absolutely does. Because we're doing something not everybody does. If you're not continuously giving glory to God, you eventually start giving pride or giving glory to yourself and feeding pride. So what we see here is, again, how strange that the 12 should respond as they did to another announcement about the cross. Instead of being humbled, they argued over who was the greatest. Remember, the Lord had been teaching them about his crucifixion. He had been teaching them about his coming death. And somehow they found themselves 
wrapped up again in the idea of pride. Now, this may have been prompted by the recent experience of Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, or Peter's experience with the temple tax that we looked at last Sunday. The other disciples may have thought that Christ was playing favorites and neglecting them. Uh, surely, we don't do that sort of thing. We can commend the disciples for having faith in his word that there would be a kingdom. I don't want to uh, overlook that. And that they would be in it. They seem to have faith there is one. They seem to have faith in the promises of, of the Lord here that they're going to be in it. But it is not spiritual to be seeking for position and greatness. It wasn't ours to claim to begin with. We don't have the authority, really shouldn't even have the interest in staking a claim in it as far as what our seat and our position would be. Romans chapter 12 says in verses 10 through 16, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. A lot, of, a lot of action words there. Uh, to not be slothful in business, fervent, serving, rejoicing, patient, continuing, instant or immediate in prayer, uh, being quick to prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one to another, one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. It is the result of being wise in our own conceits that leads to pride. It is the result of thinking that we have anything to do with salvation at all, except for talking about it and telling the world about it, that leads to pride. The second thing we need to consider comes right out of the text, where he says, Whomsoever shall receive one of such children in my name. And... There are a couple of ways it's phrased, and I've actually used them all as the remaining points of this lesson. So the first phrasing here is, Whomsoever shall receive one of such children in my name. And uh, to my shame, I didn't write which one I took that out of. It looks like it came out of Mark 9, verses uh, 36, 37. Who shall be humble enough to accept a child in Christ's name is the focus I really want to take with how Mark phrases this. Who shall be humble enough to accept a child in Christ's name? It's so easy to, to, when we get wrapped up in the studying of God's word, and this is probably something we don't talk about from the pulpit too often, but we get uh, caught up in the, in the reading and the knowledge and the understanding of God's word that when some comes with a very silly question, and sometimes our forum writers respond this way, we can respond with, they need to go read their Bibles. They need to do some research of their own. They need to fashion some kind of understanding for themselves. When we were of a fallen nature, we have no ability to do such things. Such as this child that he's using as an example here. What child would come unto us with a perfect understanding of the Word of God, a perfect understanding of what election is, a perfect understanding of how salvation works, a perfect understanding of what the word doctrine is, or rebuke, or repent? Now, we're not talking about a child that's necessarily saved in this example. We're talking about being humble enough to pray with one, to speak with one, to sit down with one. Or in, in a physical sense, the Lord is encouraging them, as we see in Romans 12, to condescend to the level of man that needs the gospel. That's why it's been given to us. 
A child in this situation is Christ's illustration of greatness. Honor comes from humility, he says. We must go down before God will lift us up. 1 Peter chapter 5 Verses 5 through 7 says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. And it is just as difficult for a prideful young person to submit themselves to an elder as it is sometimes for a uh, puffed-up elder to condescend to the level of a younger. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, Peter says, and be clothed with humility. Uh, time out before I keep reading here. Remember who's writing. Simon Peter is an expert on humility, is he not? And I'm not poking fun at Simon Peter. I've got a very Simon Peter-like nature at times. But what we've seen of him thus far in the ministry, he's had to be humbled a few times, has he not? And he's encouraging us to be clothed with humility. He says that God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Simon Peter is a receiver of a great amount of grace. How did that happen? He's not necessarily puffed up in, his, in, the, in the leading to, to talking first and speaking first and speaking out of turn, but he'd been humbled, humbled. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And we dwelt on those last few words just last week. All great saints have been humble saints. And I, I want you to understand, when I use the term great saints, uh, I'm not building statues for folks here. I'm talking of saints you know the names of. Saints that we know have been used mightily of God. Peter and Paul, they're not popes. But I would probably refer to them as great saints. A great many things had been done using them as instruments. But all of the glory, all of the praise, all of the honor for what was done goes to God. But many of these saints that we might refer to as great have been humble saints. Saul of Tarsus, I don't know, I don't know that we can safely call him an arrogant individual before we go into Acts 9 and we see him humbled. But he is definitely knowledgeable. And sadly, book smarts can be a great danger to men, uh, and likely women as well. But as a species, book smarts. Uh, are, are a type of snare, uh, tree of knowledge and understanding and all that, after all. But these saints, when, when, while children are not sinless or perfect, they do have the characteristics that ought to be in every Christian's life. And we've talked about this before. A child, as this example that Jesus is giving, is teachable. A child is simple in their wants. You might find them to be a nuisance that they want it a lot, but they're simple in what they want. When Zeb cries, like he did all morning long, it's because he has teeth ripping through the gums. A lot of us take that for granted, do we not? Some of us might be losing teeth from our gums, but that doesn't hurt near as much as teeth piercing through a gum for the first time. He has a very simple need, and it might come across as too much for our ears or too much for our minds or our focus, but they have simple wants and simple needs. They have expectant attitudes. When he says mom or more, he's expected to be cared for and nurtured. They depend on their fathers and meet their needs. I'm just going to take a quick poll. You can close your eyes if you don't want to see what everybody else votes. But raising a baby versus raising one who's maybe 13 or so older, which is harder, baby or teenager? 
Nobody's even willing to, oh, mom just voted. I won't tell Isaac which one she voted. And Marsha was about to vote. And Livy's pointing at the baby. Understand there's difficulties with all of all age groups, but there reaches a point where that difficulty changes when they're no longer expectant and dependent on their parents to meet their needs. When there's a transition into womanhood or a transition into manhood in which they're not only expected, but they need to be able to find things to suit those needs. And they need to be able to, to go out and gather. And they need to be able to harvest. And they need to be able to store up. And they need to be able to plan ahead. And they need to be able to make big decisions. I personally find that way more difficult than keeping a baby alive that's learning how to walk. And that's not a slight on Isaac. I'm talking about my own experience learning those things. It's way more difficult. Because it's easier to have an expectant and dependent attitude. You're in luck. Here, we are to have an expectant and dependent attitude. Not a one of us knows all that this word has to say. Not a one of us has a perfect understanding. We are to be dependent upon God the Father and expectant of God the Holy Spirit to deliver. Faithful in our, uh, and teachable and simple in our wants. Lord, I want to understand this better. Lord, feed me as the, the devotional this morning. Here am I. Here am I, Samuel says. He's available. He's teachable. He's simple in his wants. I'm here. Send me, it says in other places of the scripture in a response like that. This is the requirement of the believer. And this is why the Lord sets up this child as their example. Humility is a mark of greatness. Humility means you're not uh, tied up in your own pride and, and puffed upness but you're reliant upon what the word has for you, what God has for you. What then is the only way we can become a child again? Can we indeed return into our mother's womb? John 3, 5, Verily, verily, Jesus says, Except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. How can one be as humble as a child? How can one be as teachable, simple, and expectant and dependable, uh, dependent as a child? They must be born again. Because those who are lost typically have a very high level of pride, a very high level of arrogance, which is tied to pride. They can't be humbled like this. Why do we see in Isaiah 6, uh, uh, I am undone, I am destroyed? Because we are holding ourselves as a lost person, bracing ourselves with our own arms. I watched a video the other day, one of them silly reels that are like 30 seconds long. But they took the, these collegiate uh, gymnasts. I think they were all guys. I don't know. But they, they, they showed the move, and then they froze the frame on their faces as they're making the moves. I don't know if you've ever seen a video like that. Those look like the most uncomfortable, painful moves ever. And their faces reflect it. Every face was, as they're flipping around in the air, I, I don't know, I hear Eddie talk about pole vaulting, and I imagine a person's got to be grinning ear to ear to be flying through the air like that. But these collegiate performers who have done it their whole lives, in immaculate shape, amazing temperament and submission and control of their bodies, they look like they're in incredible pain. Saints shouldn't look that way. Saints running the race that God's put them on, they are to be teachable, simple, expectant, and dependent. They are to rely on the Lord, who's, uh, who is not a burden, who is a fellow yoke, who is to carry us through, who has made for us to be more than conquerors, who has made for us to be able to follow and pursue and to go unto God the Father. 
The second, the third point, the second phrase, which is similar to this from the other account, is whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child. I just finished, whosoever, whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name. I want to now look at the phrase, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child. And this we see in Matthew's account there in Matthew 18. It's a similar phrase, but it's not the same. The Lord's church was going to need to learn to love even those who were not a part of their seasoned group. And we're going to see a little bit more of this Excuse me, in the next section. So I'm going to read ahead a little bit for you. Uh, and, and the next set of outline notes will probably cover more than just one event as a result. But we see it in what comes ahead in Dr. Luke's account just after uh, where we left off earlier. So if you look at Luke 9, verses 49 through 50, we see how important it is that they learn to love outside of their seasoned group. It says, And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. I, I might be reading it wrong, but I always read this as just a tattletale. I, I don't, again, I might not be reading it the right way, but I just, I hear, I hear that one, right? The, the favorite student. We saw this guy doing things wrong, and we kicked him in the shin and ran the other way. He's not doing that anymore, Lord. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. This is a tough lesson. This is one I struggle with, particularly this time of year. Uh, many of you know my feelings towards this holiday that they call it. It's not one, but um, what is coming at the end of this month. And I detest it so, and I've explained it many, many times, because I know I was lied to, and I was in it for so long. Uh, those who follow me on Facebook know that I just had a, uh, I got reamed by my own mother because she called me a liar and said that I, I don't know the truth. I don't study history. And I won't go any further than that. She listens sometimes. And I, I honestly won't go any further than that because I don't want to shame my mother. But what Jesus tells him here is not necessarily, in context of the example I'm given, is not necessarily to not forbid people from doing heathen holidays but to understand that they're not necessarily against Christianity if they do it. Allow me to finish before you make up your mind for what I'm saying here. They shouldn't do it. They ought not do it. There's not a thus saith the Lord to do it. But if they've never heard the truth, if they've never experienced conviction to lead them away, and more importantly, if they're lost, you're going to do more damage than good. You're going to do more damage than good to attack one for being involved in something, if they don't have a conviction to be saved to begin with, and I'm not saying they're better off serving heathens, but if they're not saved, they already are. Give them an understanding of why you don't do it. Present to them the importance of the truth. Show them in Jeremiah 10. Show them the text of the green trees. Listen to an amazing series Brother Doyle Thomas did. Uh, they've got on Sermon Audio now. There's two parts to it on why he doesn't do Xmas. And if anybody's ever heard Brother Doyle preach, he doesn't really get excited too often. I love hearing him preach because he's, he's a very even preacher. Um, he, he, he delivers his point. He supports his point. And you know how he feels about it, but he's not screaming at you. I have a lot to learn from preachers like Brother Doyle, and I'll say it so you all don't have to. But understand that, that that's, that's the difficulty I have with this time of year, is I tend to usually voice my thoughts on Xmas from the pulpit, which tend to come out as yelling and tend to come out emphatic and tend to come out emotional. 
And understand if you're lost and you're tied up with it, I'm not hating on you and I'm not trying to beat you up. But it's important that you understand that you need to know why you do what you do. It's very important that you understand that. Jesus had not only his 12 apostles, but he also had 70 other men whom he could send out in service, which we see in the very next chapter in Luke 10, verses 1 through 2. And he has more than that as well. But in Luke 10, verses 1 through 2, we literally hear about these 70 others. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. We'll get into chapter 10 uh, in in the coming weeks, so I don't want to do too much with that just yet. John thought he was being spiritual in forbidding this one, forbidding this anonymous man from serving. But Jesus lovingly rebuked him. Uh, There's also something I think we can learn here from how he rebukes him because it's very different how he rebukes John here. And he's not playing favorites. But compare that to how he's rebuked Simon Peter two or three times in the recent lessons that we've gone through. Uh, Particularly when he said that Jesus didn't need to die, that he wouldn't allow it. He wouldn't see that something like that happen to his master. Uh, And how he got rebuked and how the rebuking here takes place for John. It's very different situations. Uh, And I would encourage you to maybe put both side by side and and pray on that. Our fourth point, uh, and, and this one comes out of the last account. What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? Oh, I'm sorry. That does that comes out of Mark's account, Mark 9 verses 33 and 34. What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? It is somewhat comical that these accounts all say that the disciples were reasoning among themselves. Reasoning here Strong's defines it as the thinking of a man deliberating with himself. That they were reasoning among themselves when in fact they misunderstood Jesus's teachings. Uh, and you see this a lot, honestly, when, when you're either preaching, teaching, studying the doctrines of grace, something difficult like election perhaps, that men will reason among themselves what these things mean when God had already made it plain. They reason among themselves because they don't like what God had made plain most of the time. Here we see the disciples, they lived in a society in which uh, position and power are important. And they thought the Christian fellowship functioned in the same way. Who's the better Christian? Who's the better follower? Who's the better better disciple? Who's the better administer of the word of God? Who's the better healer, as we just read with, with John there in Luke 9? Even in the upper room, before Jesus went to the cross, the twelve were still debating over which of them was number one. Consider, if you will, Luke 22, verses 24 through 30. It says, And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth. Is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, 
that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And we see the fulfillment of that in Revelation. We also live in such perilous times. Status, wealth, beauty, fame, all of these are superficial. All of these are vain. And all of these are but a vapor. They are extremely short-lived. I would encourage you not to strive for such things. They're costly. You read uh, a lot these days of, of actors or even comedians or athletes that gave their whole life to becoming famous or to doing something big or doing something to be renowned. And they've either gotten hooked on drugs, gotten hooked on alcohol, gotten broke because they trusted, um, Isaac's done a lot of study on Elvis, they've trusted family with their money or they've trusted people who weren't fit, who weren't trained, weren't qualified to handle their business. Why would we ever seek position and power utilizing such things in the church, in the kingdom? What value are these things? None of what I listed are going with you. None. Some might say, well, my beauty will go with me. I don't think we'll look at beauty the same way in the next life. As we're, as we're made perfect, as we're called up or, or, or passed away or whatever it might be before we go to glory, I don't think we're going to look at beauty the same way we do here because I don't believe we're going to have lust like we have now. Beauty right now is dictated by hormones more than anything else. I don't believe you're going to see that problem in the kingdom. God wants us to be childlike, but not childish. And providentially, he gives us examples of childishness in this same example in which he calls a child up to be their, their model. In the Aramaic the, that Jesus spoke, when he says child and servant, they're the same word. True greatness is found not in rank or possessions, but in character and service. Imagine that as we read through the text that we just have, we, we hear child, we probably think of something very different than servant. And that's because with our modern day mindsets, we've got child labor laws and things of that nature, and our homes aren't led the same way. I don't know that our children honor mother and father the same way. I was thinking the other day that uh, as we were growing up, I, I'm pretty certain, and it wasn't a concern then, but now that I am a parent, I'm pretty certain the only time that my brother and I let my mom and dad have a, an adult conversation was when we were forced to do dishes together after every meal. To do that, you had to eat home every meal, which we did, and you had to be forced because no child in the right mind volunteers to do dishes. I got three of age and they don't volunteer to do dishes. But that was the only time they actually talked as adults. There's a benefit to teaching our children to work, giving our kids responsibilities, making so they could survive. And it's what we've already heard Paul say to the Philippians. Let's read it again. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And that's where we'll close. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies... Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Do you honor someone when they ask you to do something or there's a need for something to be done and you put up a fight? There's no honor there. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, 
and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. When we read it this morning, we didn't read verse 13. And verse 13 speaks directly uh, to humility. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Let us feed the Spirit. Let us strive and study the Word of God this week. Let us become better servants, more childlike, more faithful, more teachable, more humble.